Welcome to the Fellowship College <laughs> Podcast. Some weird energy in the room today. Man, there's been very few times in the long one-year history of this podcast where I've thought about restarting the intro, and that was one of them, but we're just going to roll with it. It was weird. I'll, I'll admit it. If you're like, man, is this what... Is this what season four is going to feel like? Potentially. It's it's solely because every time you start the podcast, you make some throwaway comment right before you hit play and it throws every, well, maybe it just throws me off. It just throws you off. Jacob, (laughs) I don't know if Jacob has ever been thrown off by anything in his entire life. The guy is just so, the guy is just so steady. He's like, yeah. Yeah, 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 I'll roll with that. that Whatever. Sounds about right. I just love the the laughing energy that Eileen brings. That's what we need. It, uh, we do need that. And it's uh, it's fun to be back. If you weren't with us this summer, we kind of did a six-week uh, love, sex, and dating. We really It was really more singleness, dating, marriage, mini-series. Go listen to that if you want to. That was kind of just like a fun summer break. We're back with what I think is going to be a really, a really fruitful year, not just with this podcast, but on Sunday nights and in our, in our small groups, we're going through Luke and small groups. We're going through acts on Sunday night. The entire focus of this whole next year is going to be looking at Jesus and saying, Hey, how can we know him better? How can, as some people say, behold who he is and then start to become like him and then be a part of the mission that he has us on. That's the entire goal of everything we're going to be doing this year. And so this podcast is going to hopefully help with that. And specifically, we want we want to look at Jesus, like I said, see who he is, understand his nature, understand what he did, and then understand what he's called us to be a part of. And so today, today we're going to talk about him, Jesus's nature as both fully God and fully man and, and what that looks like. But before we get started, any anything fun happened this summer? <laughs> um, Eileen got a new car. <laughs> Eileen got a new car yesterday. And, it and we've been like, waiting for it. <laughs> we've been waiting for it. It sounds like the whole experience was like 6.5 out of 10. Yeah, it, it was not great. Um, ladies, take a, take a friend to the car dealership with you. Uh, Hopefully an eight on the Enneagram. It, honestly, I could have used it. could have used it, but um, I'm only okay. a, I'm only an eight wing, so I, I would have only been a little helpful. See, I not. still don't believe that. Uh, let it be known that I truly think Josh is a full-on eight on the Enneagram. He's That's because Eileen only sees me in work settings. <laughs> That's... Okay. Okay. <laughs> Isn't that fair? Mm-hmm. If you if you saw me with my hobbies, you'd be like, "That guy's a seven for sure." Yeah, I guess. Sure. <laughs> anyway, the wow, summer was the first summer that I was actually here in like six years, so I love Fayetteville summers. Okay. Um, yeah. What's your review of being in Northwest Arkansas during the summer? It is 
refreshing with the decrease in population over the summer. I love not like people aren't dying. They're just they're just <laughs> there's dying. a seasonal <laughs> the dying de- that happens. The in decrease favor. in population. And so we call it, y'all, hey, college students. Whenever y'all are gone, it makes a completely different atmosphere in Fayetteville. Um, it is refreshing. It slows down the pace, but I actually get more excited about the fall starting and everybody coming back. And so that transition out of the summer, super fun. Um, compared to Florida, you don't have the sea breeze, but gosh, it's way better up here than in Florida. I'll just say that Interesting. it's so like, it's humid here, but like you go just um, like a hundred yards inland from the beach in Florida. And somehow it's like mosquitoes are trying to fly away with you and you can't breathe because it's <laughs> waterlogged in the air. Eileen is frowning big here <laughs> based on that description. So I love being in Fayetteville. You know, it's a really great place. There's this, this state called Michigan. Oh my gosh. Just <laughs> listen, I will say a week ago, we all had a meeting oh. and everyone was talking about like where they would want to go. And Michigan wasn't brought up, okay. but California was okay. brought up at least half a dozen times. Josh, Four of those were by me. <laughs> What so, was your big thing this summer, Josh? I think California <laughs> beat Michigan for sure, but we all live here, and I would much rather live here than in California. So, hot take. Uh, we moved into a new house, yep. which is so fun. Uh, it's taken a couple months to feel like we actually live there, but but we do, and we live there, and now we're just kind of launching for the fall and also preparing for baby number two. Let's go. Baby boy, no name yet. So we have a month. No name Barnard. So if you have a name, please. Or baby boy Barnard. Please, no no name name. Barnard. please leave a comment. <laughs> comment if uh, if you have a name for us because we currently, we have a couple that we like, but we have not settled on one. So maybe we'll, we'll do like a, a Instagram poll on what you think the name of our son should be. That's awesome. That'd be cool. And we'll, we'll name whatever y'all decide. We'll name it. That's not true. We're not going to do that. <laughs> I, I, I would consider it, but Lauren would not. So anyway, <laughs> like we said, uh, these next couple of weeks are going to be about, before we talk about what it looks like to follow Jesus and become a part of his mission, uh, I think the best place to start is to actually start to understand who Jesus is. And I know we probably have a an array of backgrounds. Some of y'all have grown up in the church and you feel like you know who Jesus is. And some of y'all are maybe new to this whole Christian thing. And so you maybe don't don't know all these like theological terms. And so we want to make this as helpful as possible for, for everybody. We want to talk about, um, like when we talk about following Jesus, the more that we understand who he is, the, the, the easier and the, the better it's going to be to follow him. And I am convinced that the more you get to know him, the more you, you, you love him. And so today we're going to start at a very high level. We're going to talk about God's humanity, Jesus' Jesus's humanity, and his divinity. So Jesus being fully God and, and fully man. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to, before we really get into it, say why this is even important. I was going to ask that. Oh, wow. Look at that, guys. We're just so in sync today. Um, anyway, uh, why is this important? Yes, yes, yes. Um, you know, we can agree with 
so many different people on, you know, oh, how should a church be structured? Or we can agree with um, someone on, you know, how is someone saved? Or, you know, what is a sin? And you can agree on all of these different doctrines within the church. But if you are not agreeing on who you're worshiping, that's a really big deal. Um, if, if you are not united under the understanding that the God we worship is triune in nature, that he is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as one God, then, then we're not worshiping the same God. And so this is, I think, the central doctrine in Christianity. And that, that's a me statement. That is not an anyone else statement. But I, I truly think that the doctrine of who God is is one of the most, if not the most important concept that you can grasp when it comes to Christianity or any religion in general. You know, you have to know who you're worshiping. And so this gets really important um, practically, right? When we have friends who are maybe claiming Christianity, but they're not worshiping the same God that we're worshiping. Um, does that make sense? Totally. Totally. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I was going to save this quote for later, mm -hmm. but it actually, I think, is one of my favorite quotes about specifically talking about who Jesus mm -hmm. is because, you know, I have some family members and some friends who would be like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, I, he's a great teacher. You know, he's a, you know, I, I see the way that he cares for the poor and I, and I really appreciate that about him or some of the things that he said are really profound but it kind of stops there and c.s lewis really combats this view he says i am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about jesus they say i'm ready to accept jesus as a great moral teacher but i don't accept his claim to be god that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on, on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg <laughs> or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. What C.S. Lewis is saying here, and you get this famous quote. I'm sure some of y'all, if you've grown up in the church, have heard this, that Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord, aka mm -hmm. God. What he's saying here is Jesus made some audacious claims, and we'll we'll get to that in a second, about being God, fully God. And so to say that, oh, he's just a great teacher, well, either he's a liar, basically he he knows he's not God, but yet he's he's lying about it. He's a lunatic, aka he's not God, but but somehow in his mind thinks that he is, which would make him a crazy person. Or the third option, he says he's God and he believes it and he really is. And how we view that is going to completely change how we, how we view Jesus. It's going to completely change how we worship. It's going to completely change 
potentially everything about our lives. I think it was Augustine, but I might just be attributing it to him. Basically says like what we believe about God is the most important thing Mm -hmm. about us. Definitely. So the reason we're even having this podcast is because this podcast could potentially be, could, could reveal things in our, in our listeners that are, are, are off. I don't really want to use the word heretical, but, but maybe, maybe you've believed some lies about who God is and, and hopefully by the end of this podcast, we'll at least have glimpses of, no, this is the real Jesus that, that we claim as God and that, and that we worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was good. I love that quote. That's yeah. Sweet. And so again, here, here's our theological framework. And then I, we will talk about why this is really important. Our theological framework from just like a Christian doctrine level is that Jesus has two natures. He is fully God, fully man. Each nature is, is full and complete. Each nature remains distinct, but yet Christ is only one person. He's fully God and fully man in one person. And the things that are true of only one nature are nonetheless true of the person of Christ. So this is like our traditional theological framework about Jesus's two natures, his his divinity and humanity. And just for the people listening, which we'll get into, um, like Jesus's claims on this is divinity, humanity, Paul, the people who wrote the epistles, the letters in the New Testament. But this was like one of the first things that leaders in the early church movement were trying to work out um, because there were claims about going in opposite directions, saying Jesus is only one of these things or he's part of these things. And it, and it influences on the ground how you follow Jesus and what you believe about God. So this was like, I mean, heated debates about this topic in the early church and leaders trying to make sure that um, followers of Jesus are staying true to who he actually is. Um, and so just so you know, this is like those frameworks we didn't come up with. They've been worked out over centuries of the church and it started almost immediately. Yeah. So let's let's talk about why this is crucial for Christians to believe that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. What would happen if if he was only God? That we would say, hey, Jesus is fully God, but yet he he's not actually fully man. What why is it important? I guess the other way to put it, why is it important for Jesus's humanity? Yeah, whenever um whenever I think about okay, who is Jesus, you have to dive into and think about whenever Jesus is on earth doing his ministry, what you read in the gospels and acts, uh, the, the people around him are expecting in some sort of way, whatever it is that he is claiming to be. And the reason that they're expecting is because there's been years and years and years and generations of, uh, leaders of God's people and God himself speaking to people and through prophets, giving promises and expectations for, himself saving his people and making a way for the whole world to basically come into his presence. And so at the very beginning in Genesis, in the the storyline of the Bible, God starts making promises about rescuing people from uh, our sin problem, from this, this thing that is within us that's corrupting and destroying his good creation and hurting each other. Uh, and in the story, you have the serpent who's speaking, who 
later on, eventually it gets assigned to that Satan, the deceiver, the accuser. And, and God says, there is going to be one who is going to come from this line of Adam. So a human uh, who is going to crush the serpent to destroy this um, kind of arbiter of the rebellion against God and but it has to come from human and as you keep reading the story the, even, line, the line of adam yes the line yeah. of adam as you keep reading the story you see how that keeps popping up with abraham isaac jacob this family that god chooses um you get into you know way down the line david and so there's this genealogy which you see in the beginning of a couple of the gospels um where it's not just that this happens to be but if Jesus is only God and not man. Well, he cannot fulfill what God said was going to be the solution that he was going to bring about for the sin problem. And so from the beginning pages, all of that kind of just crumbles underneath the the promises to reverse with God working alongside humanity, this problem of the, sin. The curse of Adam, yes, as exactly. people say. Who's going to be the one that steps up to be mm-hmm. this new Adam Adam was entrusted as an ambassador of God to, to like be his image bearer, right? To represent God on earth. Who's going to step up and, and fulfill in all the ways that Adam failed. And the whole old Testament, we just see people that maybe have some potential and promise, but pretty quickly crumble and fail. And you see actually the seed of Adam, like all throughout that, that this flesh that we would call it today as Christians is present in anyone that would try and step into this, this lineage of Adam. And so these old Testament followers of Yahweh are are saying, when is this curse going to be reversed? Like, Mm -hmm. when is it going to be flipped? When is this, we call it the Messiah, this anointed one going to come and, and restore the kingdom and reverse the curse of Adam. Yeah, um, from the beginning pages of scripture and even throughout too, we see that through these messianic prophecies, yeah, it, it was going to be this man, the second Adam, this this human that was going to come. Um, and, you know, we see that in, gosh, I think it's Isaiah. Yeah, it's Isaiah um, where, you know, the savior will come from as a shoot from the stump of Jesse, shoot. you know, <laughs> thank you. What was that Josh? Shoot. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so it's going to be this, this human, um, that is going to basically, I mean, fix this broken humanity, right? Like Jesus's full humanity was the substitute for the rest of humanity's sin. Um, and I mean, the weight of that, is is even unthinkable like you know how could a human be able to bear the weight of all that sin which i think is what leads us then we're going to get to that in okay, a second okay. you, we're you talking more to talk about the human okay we do we do we're talking about why jesus had to be human we're going to get to his divinity in a second i think they're both so powerful to to see the importance of both of them hebrews 2 i think actually sums this up really well of why Jesus or, or why he, he had to take on human flesh. We talk about the, the seed of Adam coming in that lineage. Here's how the, the author of Hebrews talks about it in chapter two, starting in verse 14. He said, since the children, talking about like the children of Israel, have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death, he might break the power 
of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil, right? Going back to this serpent imagery back from back in Genesis three and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. Hear this. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Wow. Mm-hmm. That that passage is just so dense. It's talking about a couple reasons why Jesus had to be human. He had to take on human flesh. One of them is, is talking about he's helping humanity, Abraham's descendants. And so he had to become like them. This imagery of high priest comes up. And for some of y'all, maybe you're not really familiar with that. That's that's okay. Basically in the Old Testament, what the high priest did was he was a mediator or a representative between God and Israel, between, between God and his people. And one of the things that the high priest would do was he would would go into the presence of God and make what's called atonement. He would basically, uh, through sacrifice, would cover the sin of of his people. But because the high priest in himself was was sinful, and because it was only sheep or goats that were being offered, it was more of a, a an imagery or a symbolism that hey, by putting our faith in in Yahweh. We're saying we trust that that the blood of these goats will temporarily cleanse the sin of the people. And so one thing that Jesus does as high priest is he takes on this role as, as mediator. He takes on this role as a representative between God and his people. And instead of offering sheep or goats or bulls in order to temporarily cleanse uh, the sin of his people, he actually offers himself as the the goat or the bull or the sheep. We call it the the lamb of God in order to perfectly cleanse um, the sin of his people. Which again, we're kind of we keep tiptoeing into the divinity of God of why why a, a person could cleanse the sin of of the whole people, but. But Jesus, his his humanity was was necessary to be this perfect mediator to reverse the the curse of Adam. And then he kind of the author of Hebrews kind of just gives this like really encouraging thing at the end of that chapter where he says, and not only that, but all of you when you suffer can look to Jesus and know that everything that you have suffered, he has walked right along with you. So not only for like soteriological soteriological purposes, which just means like salvation type purposes, but also just for like encouragement when you're in a really hard season, knowing that that Jesus himself taking on human flesh has suffered the very same things that you have. That's like a really, really powerful and and crucial thing to our to our walk. 
Absolutely. Even on a like broad scale, corporate, even world level, the in that section in Hebrews, it talks about their fear of death all throughout the scriptures are the sin problem that's infected humanity. The ultimate consequence of that is death. Like whenever it becomes the worst, when you read through the old Testament, um, Israel participates in it, but the nations around them, you know, the big ones, Babylon, Assyria, they're just spreading death everywhere. They're murdering, they're killing, they're pillaging. Um, it is, it, it is the ultimate fear and consequence for kind of the wickedness in people's hearts. And Jesus, because he is man and is thus able to die, goes before another group of people, both the religious leaders and Rome as some of the oppressive nations, uh, and allows death, that thing that is kind of all-consuming, controlling, to overcome him. But then, going into the divinity part where God, through the Spirit, raises him up, uh, it is basically, it is a statement to uh, those who are using and allowing sin and the fear of death to control all things and to, again, destroy God's good creation, to say, no, like, I, I, I allowed myself to be taken over by this, uh, but again, dipping into the divinity, I have now overcome that. And so it's like the ultimate power in the world has now been defeated, but that could only happen if Jesus is fully man, uh, because if he's not, well, then he's not going to die. And so there's a individual salvation part, but then even thinking about God rescuing the world, that dichotomy, it has to happen in Jesus's humanity. Mm. I'm going to write a book called dipping into the divinity. That's got, <laughs> oh, that's so good. You said, I'll give you credit for it. Yeah, I just want the title credit. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> dipping into the divinity. That's kind of cool. Um, and so to, to wrap up this section, and then as we're, we keep kind of beating around the bush here with, with God's divinity, Gregory of uh, Nazianzus, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, says about Jesus, he remained what he was, aka he's always been fully God. He remained what he was. What he was not, he assumed. And so he's always been fully God, which we'll talk about in a second. But this humanity aspect, he hasn't always been fully man. He actually assumed that, or we talk about it like he took on flesh. And uh, Athanasius, another kind of early church father, says he became what we are that we might become what he is. So he became fully human so that we could experience a piece of this divinity that we could dip into his divinity. Great book title. Really good. <laughs> and so let's talk about that. So what would happen? Why is Jesus's divinity important? Like what would, what would happen if he was only fully human and wasn't fully God? Why is his divinity important? I mean, we are familiar with humanity. Uh, we understand. I've heard of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we understand that we're not perfect people and we never could be no matter how hard we try. Some of us try. I have tried. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> we mess up. We fail. We sin. We stray from the Lord. And in order to have that, that perfect sacrifice, like Josh was talking about earlier, one without a blemish, one without a stain, we, no human would be able to fulfill that. And, and that's why, or not why, but I mean, we look to Jesus's divinity as that perfect substitute. Um, and no human would have been able to accomplish that. Um, and so Jesus, what, he couldn't have 
oh, he's God up in heaven one day. And then, oh, he, he's no longer God. And now he's just fully human walking the earth. Um, and then, you know, he dies for our sins. And then once he dies, he's, he's fully God again. That that's a heresy called modalism. And that is not what happened. What happened is Jesus was at the same time, fully God and fully man at at the same time. There was no 50, 50, 75, 25, um, both natures were equal in unity and one essence and that that divinity had to have been present in his humanity at the same time in order for him to complete that sacrifice as the perfect substitution yeah and the you know talking about the substitution language the only way that like jesus is considered um within the the sacrifice substitution language as perfect or acceptable for something like this because he was completely faithful to God, uh, which like I, like you said, humanity we're familiar with. We can never be fully faithful to God, even when we want to be. And a lot of times, in fact, most people don't want to be. Uh, and so that sin problem that's at the beginning for us because of our humanity, uh, it is, it infiltrates all things. And so if Jesus is fully human without the God peace, he is no different than anybody else. There, There is not a world in which Jesus could have been only fully human uh, and not divine, not God, and ha- overcome that sin problem. Um, and one of the reasons that there's this long history and story throughout the scriptures and thousands of years across um, cultures and within Israel of that constantly happening over and over again is to show that it is not possible outside of God's power to resist the temptation to rebel against God and kind of join this other kingdom. Uh, And so God is the one alone who is able to resist that. Uh, And so the the thing that removes the little sin thing that's constantly raging, you know, inside of us, um, which is also a slight veer whenever somebody begins following Jesus and becomes a believer and God gives them um, uh, his spirit, they are now empowered and enabled to actually resist it. Whereas before you couldn't resist it. And so it's that same power that Jesus is completely walking in, in his divinity to be fully faithful to God. That's good. And so what I'm hearing is, what would happen if Jesus was only fully man? He wasn't, he wasn't divine. He wasn't fully God. First off, he, he wouldn't be able to conquer sin and death just because he would fall into the same sort of temptations that the rest of us fall, fall into. Sure. He could be, like we said, a, a good teacher and a, like maybe even a prophet, but he wouldn't be able to fully bear the wrath of God. Like I I try to think of a better way to say this. And so I'm sorry if this is not a great way to say this, but if he was only fully man, his, his death would not be valuable enough to save, to save humanity. Yeah. It's the Hebrews talked even more about it. The, the ongoing sacrifice, that's a continual atonement, uh, everything in our humanity cannot produce that. Uh, And so whenever he is being high priest, he continues to be high priest, sitting at the right hand of the father, making intercession for us. And it is only that it's, it's his unique 
nature and death and blood that is in relation to all the sacrifices that went before him that makes it an ongoing thing to where it's like when the veil gets torn in the temple, it's like, hey, the only reason that that's possible is because we are completely clean now. Even whenever I sin today, I am still completely clean. I'm completely innocent because Jesus's death is that ongoing sacrifice. And you have a perfect mediator Mm -hmm. between you and the father, Mm -hmm. which is huge. And so I think I got this from Gospel Coalition. I actually was looking at a lot of resources and I didn't write down where I got this from. I think it was Gospel Coalition, but they said to kind of sum sum this section up, the Redeemer, aka Jesus, had to be truly human in order to suffer and sympathize. And he had to be truly divine in order to satisfy and secure. Mm. And so that's just like a simple way of, of saying why why Jesus has to be fully God and fully man. And so for the last 10 minutes, now that we know the importance of it, let's talk about how do we know that this is true? If it's this important, how can we have faith and how can we, how can we know that Jesus is fully God and fully man? So what proof do we have of Jesus's divinity? Mm, divinity, um, well, we can look to scripture specifically, and you can think of the ones. So it's John 1, Colossians 1, and Hebrews 1. Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. I, it's like I learned that in a class or something. I don't know. <laughs> I've actually never heard that, but I like that. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's fun. Um, yeah. So you can look to those um, for specifically Jesus's divinity. So John 1, right? That's the in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning through him. All things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Um, and so that, I mean, it, I'm sure a lot of you have heard those verses before, but even just reading it, it's kind of like, oh, wow, that was a lot of weird words, weirdly stated things. Um, but we see, and truly all of John 1 is just a beautiful understanding of of just Jesus and, and, um, this idea of the incarnation, which is just a fancy way of saying, um, God in the flesh. And we think, uh, carnal incarnation, that's just flesh God, um, put on flesh. Um, but yeah, looking at John one, even going down to verse 14, we know the beginning of John is talking about Jesus when it uses the word, because looking at verse 14 of chapter one, it says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, and even going on, I think it's verse eight. And even like, like dive deeper into that mm-hmm. when it says the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that word is the same word for tabernacled, Yeah. which for the, for any old Testament readers, like any Jews reading this, the tabernacle was the presence of God. Like that's where God's presence dwelt. And so what John is claiming here is that Jesus, the word became flesh and it was the actual presence of God that was with us. Look what John did. Which is crazy, which goes into Colossians oh, 1. Go Colossians ahead. Colossians 1, yeah, yeah. Um, you can look down to verses like 15 through 18-ish, uh, 17. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. It's not saying that Jesus was created. Jesus is eternal, one with the Father. Um, but this 
firstborn over all creation language. That is not in being born, but in um, being the heir to all things. That's what that that is saying. So the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and in him, all things hold together. Uh, I mean, even if we're we're going back to this 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 orthodox understanding of who God is, He's the Creator and the Sustainer of of the world, and we see here Jesus was there at creation; He was creating. Um, so, so that's just another one. And then Hebrews one. So we have John one, Colossians one, and then Hebrews one, starting in verse one. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Um, after, yeah, continuing on, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Uh, so he became as much superior to the angels as the name inherited superior to theirs. So, um, right. This is, is saying, yeah, in the old Testament, we, um, would see God speaking through these prophets and these people. Um, but now he's given us his son, um, this air using that air language that we just saw in Colossians. Um, and he's the exact representation of the son is the exact representation of the father's being. It goes back to this idea that we have the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit as one essence, um, three distinct persons, but one essence in the Trinity. So this is Jesus's full divinity. Mm. And so from a biblical framework, we see Jesus's divinity, like Eileen said, uh, John 1, Colossians 1, Hebrews 1, we see all throughout the gospels, Jesus claims it himself modern readers of the New Testament, it, it kind of gets lost on you. His I am statements in John are all claims to being the same God that we see in Exodus three, mm-hmm. like in the, in the fire, like that God saying, I am who I am. Jesus is claiming that. And which is why the Pharisees were trying to kill him. Peter himself before Jesus's death says, you, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This would be a reference to Psalm two, this this anointed one, the Messiah figure, the the living the living God, Thomas after Jesus raises from the dead, who doesn't believe that, kind of has like lost faith, doesn't believe that that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus encounters him, shows him the holes in his side, the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet, and his response is, "My Lord and my God." If Jesus isn't God, that would be blasphemy like mm-hmm. thomas could be put to death by the jews for claiming that jesus is god and so that's like a a, a biblical framework honestly from a like a non-biblical like historical framework we look to jesus's death or resurrection and ascension mm-hmm. which which there's non-biblical historical proof of uh we don't really have time we have like three minutes <laughs> but go go look that up because it's not just the Bible that that claims God's divinity. Like there is evidence that Jesus was buried and his body's gone. And there's eyewitnesses to his resurrection and ascension, which 
is only something that God could do. But for sake of time, what are what is uh so if that's proof of his divinity, what's proof of Jesus's humanity? Maybe a little bit easier to <laughs> to prove is that God that Jesus was fully human. Yeah. That's a fully human part that even just starting at the historical evidence piece, um, there are so many historians, um, not even non-Christian historians that affirm, yes, Jesus of Nazareth at this time period, interacting with these people, that is historical fact. Um, I've heard a lot of people try to make a claim, a claim to refute Christianity and stuff that like Jesus was kind of more of a legend or whatever. And frankly, that's intellectually lazy. Um, so go look it up. Um, Jesus is like 100%. He was a historical figure. Um, but the biblical evidence, one of my favorite things um, about the biblical evidence of Jesus's humanity is whenever you get the genealogies, um, I, I also don't think they're necessarily fun to just read through all of them. But if you go back and you look up all of the names of those and see where they fall into this um, historical timeline, both in the scripture narrative through the Old Testament and then even just world history, um, those are given to, for multiple reasons. But one of them is to show Jesus's humanity, to show his origins from first people, Adam, uh, to show the tribe of Israel that he would have descended from, that he is a, in relation to David, which is a bunch of messianic prophecy. Uh, and so it's literally, it's like almost just a little bit of history thrown into a couple of the beginning of the gospels um, to, to show that, Hey, this is literally where Jesus comes from. This is his family lineage. His great, 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 great grandfather was this person. Um, so that's one of my favorite biblical proofs. So go check it out and then go read the old Testament after you do it. Always read the Old Testament. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think, too, we can also look to Philippians chapter 2 um, and look at how he took on humanity. Um, you know, Jesus, not only that, but, yeah, he, he took on full humanity in order to um, fulfill all of the prophecies. And like Jacob said, you know, he came from the lineages and, um, we know that he is coming from the, the shoot of Jesse, the, the stump of David, or he, he is the shoot of shoot. David, stump of Jesse every time, Josh, mm. and you should do that every time. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, I think even, did someone mention the historians in, mm -hmm. in Josephus? Yeah, Josephus. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they're claiming, Hey, there's this guy down there. Not not Christian, <laughs> non-Christian historians. Yeah, yes. So this is not tainted by uh, biblical things. Yeah, these non-Christian historians who are saying, "Hey, there's this guy down there who's causing a ruckus." And so, mm. um, yeah. And and I know we mentioned this earlier, but I, I also wanted to bring up the reference really quickly. Um, Lee Strobel put in all the work in his um, book yeah. Case for Christ to really talk about. Um, his deity and a little bit of his, his humanity as well. And so Proof that's of his source. resurrection. Mm -hmm. and yeah, that's good. And so uh, to close, we're going to kind of, we're going to go back to that C.S. Lewis quote. He says, when it, when it comes to Jesus, you have to make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. And so I'm hoping that this semester, as we continue to see who Jesus is, that all of us in, in a deeper way will continue to, to see Jesus, 
to see his beauty, to see his glory, and will fall at his feet and say, truly, this is the Christ, the Son of God. And so until next week, grace and peace. peace.